Good afternoon, brethren. I'm very glad that we have 117 here with all the young people, and I've heard of quite a number, who've gone down to Anderson to this special camp out or gathering. Well, I thought we'd just have a 200 or 210, but anyway, a lot of people still turned out, so our attendance is certainly still holding up, and we're, we're grateful for that. I want to welcome any guests that might be here and certainly welcome our visiting elder from Australia. Enjoyed hearing him. He did speak in a foreign language, but uh, I think most of us could understand. I'm kidding. I, I used to persecute my students in Brickett Wood. We had a lot of Australians there, and uh, we kidded them, and they kidded us, as well as the British uh, students and fellow faculty members. I know on the 4th of July, why two of the faculty members, Mr. Suckling and Mr. Francis Bergen, were both very uh, intelligent and had a good sense of humor. And uh, so we came in to the faculty lunch. We were having summer courses then, and so we had lunch even on the 4th of July. And they said, welcome to Rebellion Day. We call those Independence Day. They call it, we rebelled against His Majesty the King, remember, George III. So they called it Rebellion Day. So we went back and forth on that for a while, and we had a lot of fun with the differences over there between us from America and Canada and England and Australia. Well, brethren, about 3,500 years ago, God revealed His plan through His holy days. This church is the only church, that is, the various branches of the Church of God descended from Mr. Herbert Armstrong. We are the only people who understand God's plan simply because God guided him to put together, in a sense, the understanding, which was always there, but to be willing to keep all seven of the holy days and to understand the plan of God. The other churches, even calling themselves Church of God, do not understand that. And the world's churches do not understand. I think it's good that we realize that. Very, very few people understand why we're here on the earth, and they don't understand God's plan. And certainly, we understand through this holy day that we are to come out of sin. The other night, Mr. Legan and I conducted the Passover. And, of course, that is a memorial of the death, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ to pay for our physical sins and our spiritual sins, and very, very meaningful. Anyway, we are grateful to have had that occasion. And before I go on, by the way, I had it here in my notes. I say I forgot to do it, introducing the sermon and just saying hello. I do thank uh, our visitor from Australia for the sermonette, and I wanted to thank the ladies who sang, too. Uh, that was, uh, I don't always think those who sing, I don't always remember it, but that was especially beautiful. It seemed like the three of you sang very, very well together. And uh, all the trios and quartets don't necessarily blend like their voices did. They were only missing one thing. I noticed they kept looking at me. I think they were hoping I would get up there and sing with them. <coughs> I hope you know that was a joke. But anyway... I don't sing anymore except in the bathtub, but at any rate, uh, uh, or the shower. <laughs> but at any rate, I did enjoy that very much. It was very, very well done. So we're here to remind ourselves of the plan of God. Brethren, back in Exodus 12, we find the beginning of that plan described. And as I get into the sermon, I want to refer to that. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, 
to Exodus chapter 12. And God said and spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And then they would share it with the house next door if they needed to. Your lamb shall be without blemish, verse 5, a male of the first year. You'll keep it up until the 14th day, kill it at twilight, take the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the little of the doors. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted with fire. And so he talks about that. And he said, eat it in haste, verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. This is not the Jews' Passover. This is the Eternal's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the ever-living one. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So he destroyed all the firstborn of the entire nation. As we know that. And that was a terrible thing, a terrible plague coming on them because they got descended into the depths of depravity and rejected God and turned away from his people. Even when God gave them sign after sign to know that he was the creator, they still would not listen. God is going to begin to give our nations, Canada, United States, Australia, Britain, signs. So they will begin to know, but they will reject too, God indicates. They will not turn back to God. I can't see how they would at this time. But he did back then to ancient Egypt. They did not. So when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. God passes over our sins if we accept the blood. They had to accept the blood of this original unblemished male lamb who is a type of Jesus Christ. And, of course, we accept the blood of the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he said in verse 15, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread. I'm sorry, this is verse 18 now. Unleavened bread. You shall eat it until the 21st day of the month at evening. And so leaven was to be put out. And he said he was then commanding them to do this. Now, in chapter 13, if you turn to Exodus 13 and verse 5, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the eternal. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. We know that leaven is a type of sin, Leaven causes the bread to puff up, and sin causes us to puff up. And for any of you, brethren, who are new or you young people, remember when we say someone's all puffed up or whatever, that means they're self-willed. All of us have self-will. We want what we want, and we want it now. And especially this newer generation are used to instant gratification. They want to be pleased right now. They don't want to wait 
get married and after they've got ready necessarily and had their money saved and take time and so on. And after they get married, they want a big house and a big car and all the fine things their parents may have worked for 30 or 40 years to have. They want it right now, even though they go in debt to get it, even though they get it on credit cards, which often they can't pay off later. They want it and they want it now. But all of us, old people and young, tend to be puffed up at times. And that's the essence of sin, being puffed up, not humble, not realize they were just a speck of dust. Each one of us is like a speck of dust. We're like a vapor, as the Bible says, a little wisp of smoke that appears for a little while, and then we're gone. We need to think of that, and we need to be humble and be willing to learn from God. So God tells us to do these things. So he told them to keep the days of unleavened bread here. And in chapter 13 and verse 3, he says, Moses said, Remember the day which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? No leavened bread shall be eaten. And he says then in verse 6, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day shall be a feast of the Lord. So that was the day that we were to keep, a feast, and each of the first day and the last day. He says in verse 9, It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the eternal's law, notice, brethren, this is similar to the description he gives of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was to be a sign in their hand and in their forehead. They were to cease work. And in their mind, they were to think about God and know this is God's day. He's the creator. He's our boss. A sign from God. And so this holy, these holy days are pictured the same way as a sign, as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law, this is part of God's law. This, in a sense, is an extension of the Sabbath. When God says, you have refused to keep my Sabbaths, he told his people back in Ezekiel chapter 20, that must have included the annual Sabbaths as well as the weekly Sabbaths. They're all part of that law, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Eternal has brought you out of Egypt. So we do need to think about that and understand we're here for a very great purpose to remember the sacrifice of Christ and that's the first thing in God's plan. And then the next thing in God's plan, after we've accepted Christ and received the Holy Spirit, then we're to grow in grace and in knowledge and come out of sin. And sin is pictured as being in Egypt. We've all been in spiritual Egypt or Babylon. Babylon is the term used in modern times, but they were to come out of Egypt. We're to come out of Egypt today. We're to come out of Babylon and yet, brethren, today, Satan has surrounded us with Egypt. Egypt and Babylon are all around us in every possible way. When I was growing up as a boy, about all we had was radio. And then we would go to the movies on Saturday afternoon, as I've explained. We didn't know about the Sabbath, of course. And there we would see the Lone Ranger or Hopalong Cassidy chasing the Indians over the hill. And after they'd come back or they'd won the battle or whatever it was, then they would pat the horse and wave to the girl. <laughs> a very little illicit sex, very little violence in that sense. Very clean, absolutely squeaky clean by today's standards. 
Today, we're surrounded by all kinds of wrong sounds coming out of our radio, cussing, illicit sex is being discussed openly on some of these talk shows in a very vile and vulgar way. And then they have so-called music booming out of the radio, booming out of the boom boxes and all these other noisemakers. Noise that is just noise, has no rhythm, no melody, just run, 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 like that. And your face type noise, they try to call music, but actually breaks all the laws of music. For those who know that there are mathematical formulae and laws of music, these modern so-called songs often break those laws. It's not music, it's noise. That's part of Satan. It, it creates along a kind of a hysterical atmosphere. Today we have the wrong kind of radio. We have terrible movies. Some of the even R's and, and certainly the X's and all will picture absolutely vulgar, horrible things that would never remotely have been shown before. And young people go to those things by the millions. That's now invading television and even some of the main TV uh, channels have those things on and now the internet and you can just push a button any teenage boy that knows about it wants to could just push, push a few buttons and he could see young naked women gyrating into every conceivable type of situation in a horrible manner and it, it's just they're right there for pushing buttons they don't have to try to go to some strip show down in the railroad, railroad bottoms or something as we had back when I was growing up. They could just push a few buttons, and there it is on their Internet. Every vile thing, homosexuality and other kinds of perversion are just openly pictured. A lot of you old people may not realize that. Perhaps you all do, but it's just right there. And all the young boys know about it, or the vast majority of them. I'm not educating them. I don't even know how to do it myself, frankly. I've not got into it that much. My wife showed me some things like that several years ago. She just thought it was good for me to realize what our boys could be watching. And it kind of shocked me. After a few minutes, I said, well, honey, I don't, she can testify to this. I don't need to see him anymore of this. I'm old enough. It's not going to bother me that much, but it's not good for me. I just don't need to see it. So I had to turn it off. Not that I'm nicey-nice. I think women are absolutely beautiful. I married a beautiful woman. Some of you young men will might think, well, why do you think your wife is beautiful? They you see a 60-some-year-old uh, grandmother. I see a beautiful, gorgeous young widow who came down from Bakersfield to be my sweetheart, to be my wife, to be my help, to be the mother of my children. And I always picture her that way. When I think of her, that's the way I picture her. And I don't care how old she gets or whatever happens. And that's why the way all of you men should try to picture your wife. And I really do. I don't have to work at it. That's just the way I try to think about her. And she's in a special situation now, as you know, with her cancer. But as she gets over the cancer, which I pray she will, while she'll gain some of her weight back and fill out and begin to be radiantly beautiful. And she'll be radiantly beautiful to me, whether she is to you or not. So tough luck to you. You just can't figure it out. <laughs> I'm able to figure it out. <laughs> and every man should figure that out about his own wife and feel that way. And we all should do that and perhaps do it even better than we do. But brethren, Satan has just filled the Internet with all this kind of stuff. We're surrounded by Satan the devil and his broadcasting system. I call it SBS. Remember one of our main radio uh, channels, the CBS, Columbia Broadcasting System. 
So we have Satan, and I call it SBS, Satan's Broadcasting System. We read about it back in Ephesians chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, and let's begin reading in verse 1. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 and chapter 1, Paul wrote the Ephesians, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And brethren, all of us have been dead. That is, as far as God is concerned, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and except for Christ's sacrifice, we are under the law, in the sense we have broken God's law, and we are under the death penalty. So you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Most all of us did. Even you people, you young kids that grew up in the church, you had friends and you went out and you did things that were undoubtedly not right many times. The course of this world, of this society, remember he's not talking about the earth, he's talking about the human society under the influence of Satan the devil. The course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Satan the devil is busy. Satan never gets tired. He never gets tired. He works, he works, he tries to turn people aside from God in every way he possibly can, and we need to realize that. He has a whole system set up to turn us aside from God. He has it permeating the radio, television, the motion pictures, the internet, various ways of approaching marriage, various wrong ways of approaching sex, various ways of approaching drugs, and liquor, they always make fun of any sincere preacher. He's usually the jackass, in a sense. They make fun of him and make him look like an oaf, like a stupid donkey. And they make fun of anyone, almost, in these modern movies that has a sincere attitude toward God. They make them look ridiculous. They have humor in there, and some of the humor is pretty clever. Satan is not stupid. He's clever, but he can put a clever twist on things and makes God's way look bad and makes Satan's way look good. And you young people especially need to realize that. Satan can do that. The humor is very cleverly done, but it's done so well that hundreds of millions of young people around the world are buying into it. They're thinking, well, the way of the old God of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, or anyone that takes the Bible seriously, that's not fun. That's serious. That's strict. That's bad. That's silly. That's the way they make God's way look because Satan is behind that. He is very clever at marketing evil. And you need to realize that. Very clever. So let's do understand. Satan has surrounded us with that. And we are under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. As God called him here in verse 2, the prince of this earth's atmosphere and through this earth's atmosphere, he broadcasts radio, he broadcasts television, the Internet, everything else. And we get Satan's ideas, Satan's attitudes, Satan's approach to every facet of life pumped and pumped right into our living rooms and right into the brains of our young people over and over. So we're surrounded by Babylon. We're surrounded by Egypt, whether we like it or not. I want us to take a peek today about one way Satan is deceiving America 
and most of the Western world and virtually all the world in one sense, but this is especially the Western world. I'm going to read a few passages here from a book that Dr. Winnale and I've both referred to in the past. I've written a section or two about it in one of my articles, and I think he has as well. It's called The Marketing of Evil by David Capellian. David Capellian is an Armenian, just like Mr. Aparty. I-A-N normally is an Armenian, and the, of course, uh, I-O-N is normally Syrian. It's one of the best books on this topic I've ever read. It's just very, very well written and very well documented. He doesn't just give his opinion. He directly quotes from Alfred Kinsey, the father of the modern sexual revolution. He quotes from Bernard Nathanson, the father of the whole idea of of modern uh, homosexuality. And he he quotes from many of these people who helped get these movie motions started. Here I want to read from the introduction... And if any of you are taking notes, well, you can write down where I'm reading from. I'm going to begin reading here, beginning in page 11, from the marketing of evil, which is very, very well done. He says, as Americans, we've come to tolerate, embrace, and even champion many things that would have horrified our parents' generation. Things like abortion on demand virtually up to the moment of birth, And in this book, he describes in gruesome detail how they pull this baby out of the mother's womb and literally sometimes, if it doesn't come out whole, have to pull it apart. I don't want to go into it anymore to make people sick, but it's just awful what they do. They literally pull it apart. And one woman was so horrified after her abortion, she realized what happened. She began to scream and yell and took six people to hold her down when she realized what she had done. Things like abortion on demand, virtually up to the moment of birth, judges banning the Ten Commandments from public places, a national explosion of middle school sex, middle school, little kids, ages of, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, into sex already. Why? That didn't happen virtually ever back in my generation. Why? Were we a lot better? No, we had the same human nature. We didn't have all this garbage pumped and pumped into our heads like they do today. These poor kids have this just saturating their minds, saturating their motion pictures, saturating their television programs, and even some of their schools allow and promote this kind of thing. Literally, in their sex classes and passing out condoms in their sex classes and in junior high and high school, just passing them out. I don't want to offend anyone, but you shouldn't be offended. This is being done right out in our society all the time. The kids aren't embarrassed about it. They know it already. We need to know it. So anyway, this is a place our country is coming to. The slow starvation of the disabled. Often disabled people are not taken care of and we just let them starve. Thousands of homosexuals openly flouting the law. This book was written by five or seven years ago, by the way, before these laws started changing. And getting, quote, married, end quote. And online porn creating late night sex addicts in millions of middle class homes. I don't know how many of you know about the millions of men who get into pornography. They are addicted to pornography. We've had many men in our church. Some of you here, men here maybe. I don't haven't heard about it from Mr. League or any of our counselors, but I've encountered two or three of them myself over the years 
they would sit in our church and later admit they are just hooked on it. They have to keep punching this up. Thousands of pictures of, of, of naked women and so on. They're just, they can't stand to live without it. They're hooked on it because of the society they grew up in, which this type of stuff wasn't even available before. Late-night sex addicts in millions of middle-class homes. At the same time, our courts have scrubbed America's classrooms surgically clean of every vestige of the religion on which this nation was founded, Christianity. This man is, from reading his book, he really is a sincere Protestant Christian, apparently. Indeed, in 50 years, we've gone from a nation unified by traditional Judeo-Christian values to one in which those values are increasingly scorned, rejected, and demonized. What's going on? Are today's Americans inherently more morally confused and depraved than previous generations? Of course not. No, the kids growing up today are no worse than I was, or Jackie Hall, or Monty Taylor, or Jimmy Mallett, or all the guys you've heard me mention, and all my friends. They're no worse by nature. They're growing up in a society that just overwhelms them with Babylon, with things poked right in their face that I never had to put up with. And our society's putting up with it. We're letting it happen. If that happened back in Joplin, Missouri, 60 years ago, the city fathers would have risen up and run these people out of town. They would have. I know that. But somehow it just gradually happens. You've all heard the story of the frog. You, you, you put the frog in a pan and you warm up the water in the pan so slowly the frog doesn't realize that he's slowly being broiled to death. And by the time he feels the heat, he's so anesthetized he can't jump. He's just stuck right there. That's what happened to many of our brethren in the worldwide church. Remember, some of the leaders wrote in the uh, pastor general's report, well, we're just making a little uh, change. We're making a little uh, alteration, a little modification, a little this, a little that. They use these terms and they change this and change that. And pretty soon everything was changed. The Sabbath was changed, the holy days were done away, unclean meats were abolished, and everything that made us distinctive from the mainline Protestant churches, they got rid of. They got rid of. And now they've gotten rid of every picture of Mr. Armstrong, everything that reminded anyone of Mr. Armstrong on the campus. They stamped out, they broke, they sold, they got rid of. And even when I was deputy chancellor at Big Sandy and getting ready to leave because they were kicking me out, I had to try to get the librarian to send me several extra copies of Mr. Armstrong's autobiography and Mystery of the Ages because I heard they were instructed from Pasadena. They didn't go through me. They should have. I was supposed to be over the campus, but they told them directly, get rid of these books. Get, they throw them away or burn them. They were taking the books by Mr. Armstrong right out of the library, right under our noses. They wanted to destroy everything that reminded them of Mr. Armstrong. And the world is trying to do that about God himself. They'll try to destroy every vestige of true Christianity, slowly, 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 until people are being broiled and they don't realize it. So we have to understand that as Christians, this can happen to us. It happened to thousands of our brethren. And every now and then I think about it, it makes me mad. People that I personally taught and taught and taught and loved and may have baptized or performed their weddings, they're gone. Why are they gone? 
because these rotten heretics came in there and twisted and twisted and perverted everything we taught them. It can happen here. If I would die and Mr. Ames would die or other people might take over, I don't think it'll happen the same way again because everyone that we know of the leaders here, including Mr. Ames and Dr. Nail and others, are seen to be very straightforward. But it could happen again, and all of you need to realize that. That's the pattern of what did happen. It almost happened back in the 70s, and then Mr. Armstrong was able to come back from his massive heart failure and put the church back on the track, you see. But then, after his death, it came in full blast, and the people went for it. That's human nature. So what's going on? Are people more depraved by nature than they used to be? Of course not. But we have been taken in big time by some of the boldest and most brilliant marketing campaigns in modern history. He goes on to describe this. And I'm going to just read one more paragraph on the next page, page 12. Few of us realize that the widely revered father of the sexual revolution, that's Alfred Kinsey, he describes it in detail and proves it from their own writings later on, has been irrefutably exposed as a full-fledged sexual psychopath who encouraged pedophilia and whose vaunted scientific surveys, quote-unquote, included interviewing our incarcerated sex offenders and prostitutes while pretending they were typical World War II-era Americans. He said he took a, a, a scientific sample of average Americans, and then he'd go into the whorehouses, and he'd go into the bedens of iniquity and get people's interviews and tell, ask them they would give the answers he wanted. And so about then later on, uh, do or that the gay rights, in quote, movement, which transformed America's former view of homosexuals as self-destructive deviants into the, their current status as victims and cultural heroes. You see, they had a whole marketing campaign, and when AIDS hit, it was going to ruin their whole deal there. The homosexuals realized, what do we do? What do we do? So they got two Harvard-trained experts in psychology and marketing, and they began to realize you had to, you had to define it differently, use different words. So instead of saying homosexuals or queers or perverts, now they came up with the word gay. They actually talked to each other, had big meetings. What do we call it? What do we call it? Gay. Rather than being sad and wretched, gay sounds good. What's wrong with gay? So then they began to push that and push that at the public, push that, gets their own people and sympathizers and the media to suddenly use the word gay. Gay. That was never used when I grew up about homosexuals. Do you young people realize that? That came in just the last 20 or 30 years. They pushed and pushed that in there. They've changed the definition of terms. Now they call it gay rather than perverts. And so they, they turned them into victims. Oh, well, we're victims. We're like the Negroes who were put, put down and, and made slaves and persecuted. And so now we're victims. You see, they tried to identify. Well, if I were a black person, I would resent that bitterly. And many black people do resent that bitterly, that these queers try to say, we're just like you. know they're not like you. They're not born that way. There has never been any scientific proof whatever that people are born homosexuals. If there were, it would invalidate the Bible. The Bible said God will not tempt anyone beyond what he's able, but will with everyone provide a way of escape. If you're born that way, you can't help it. 
There have been many books and articles coming out showing they have, they always talk about it. They try to give the impression that there is a gay gene, but there is not. That's one of the most damnable lies out of Satan's hell. There is not a homosexual gene. You can't help it if you were born a man or a woman or tall or short or black or fat or thin. It doesn't make any difference. You're born that way. You are not born an alcoholic. You are not born a drug addict. You're not born a child molester. You are not born a homosexual, period. Please understand that, young people, and I hope this gets sent to all the churches. They need it. We have been taken over by an in-depth campaign, marketing campaign, published in a plan laid out by professional Harvard-trained marketers. It's that simple. If we know the market is a marketer is a con man, we just tell him to get lost. He goes on to describe the whole campaign about how they have introduced illicit sex is okay, living together is okay, homosexuality is okay, the crushing of baby skulls and vacuum little babies right out of their mother's womb, that's okay. Why? They've changed the definition of terms. Instead of calling it murder, you know, they call it women's rights, women's reproductive rights. And they try to make it into, again, a person who doesn't have that right to murder their baby. He's a victim, supposedly. And yet most, and they try to present a few poor teenage girls that get caught or don't know what to do, where the statistics show the vast majority of abortions are performed on married women. They don't have to have a, an abortion. They just don't want to control themselves. They go ahead and have babies, and then they go kill their babies. God's going to deal with those people, not just those women, but with these men who market this stuff, twist and pervert the terms, deceive people. And the men are every bit as guilty in it, and these books, this bring, brings that out. So any of you who want to get it, write it down. The Marketing of Evil by David Capellian. It'll stand your hair on end, I think. But I was reading it just the last two days. I never quite finished it, and I almost finished it, so I will try to finish it tomorrow. It shows what Satan has done. Satan has done a masterful job of deceiving the whole world, not just in these things, but down through time. But in these particular ways, it's amazing to see how he has caused Bernard Nathanson, you know, to lie and lie and lie and give the impression that certain things were happening that were not happening that way at all. And Alfred Kinsey, the father of the sexual revolution, to lie and lie and take so-called surveys of average Americans that were no more average than Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny or, or Adolf Hitler, let's say, comparing it to another human. They were not average Americans at all. They were jailed convicts or prostitutes or whatever. They had a way of lying and lying and lying to get their way. And American public has fought, has fought, bought into it. And the media, most of the media are trained in these journalism schools are young hotshots. They're party schools. I was, had the opportunity to be in the betas at the University of Missouri. My friend Henry Robertson was president there and I played on the football team with him and dropped in high school and he liked it. So I got to go to Rush Week. But I found out the University of Missouri was what they call a party school. They just got drunk all the time, and when they came in from a date, well, they'd be asked a question and ha-ha-ha and carry on. A dirty, rotten atmosphere as a whole, 
I didn't just come to Ambassador College because of that, because I wasn't so good. I came because I was just aching to learn the truth. But later I came to realize it was really good I didn't go there. It was the wrong place to go. The journalism schools are usually permeated with communists, liberals, socialists, and they just feed on that stuff and bring that stuff right into our media. That's the reason, brethren, you can't fully trust what you read in the New York Times or the mainstream media. You really can't. They always put a slant on it. They put an absolute slant on it, and they often just have it wrong. I'm glad they still have the Wall Street Journal, frankly. Before he died, Mr. Armstrong said that was the best newspaper in the world. I heard him say that more than once. Now, don't get me wrong. The Wall Street Journal is not like Tomorrow's World, our magazine. It's not perfect at all. But compared to the, to the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and some of these others, it's very conservative. And at least she gives it the other side of the story most of the time. So Satan the devil saturates this world with his approach to everything. He saturates his, the world with his idea toward drunkenness and his attitude toward God, his attitude toward God's ministers. You learn to disrespect the ministry, any minister, if you watch television often enough. He has a way of putting down the Ten Commandments and God's way of life. He has a way of putting down God's attitude toward sex, toward liquor, toward Life, the very meaning of life and, and abortion is, is the worth of a human life. What is the worth of human life toward education? What education should really be toward government? What should government really be about? Because he's going to have his government. So he tries to inject into human beings a wrong approach to government and every other aspect of life and pervert our thinking. It is brainwashing through Satan the devil and through the media. And this book really brings it out. As I say, this man is in the media. In a sense, he helps publish World Net Daily. And he writes books and knows the top media and quotes from them extensively. Their own writings and what they admit about themselves. It's amazing what is in this book. They are all under the influence of Satan the devil. Let's turn to Revelation 17 now, if you would, brethren. Revelation 17. We need to realize how often our attitudes come from, where they come from, and how we need to counteract modern Egypt and modern Babylon that we're commanded to come out of. Revelation 17, he describes here the seven angels said, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot or the great whore who sits on many waters. So the whore sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, any of you young people or any new people, it doesn't say a few oddballs off in a corner. It says the world is made drunk. The inhabitants of the world, in other words, the vast majority of human beings are spiritually drunk through the wine of the fornication of this great whore. And notice in verse 15, he says, The waters which you saw where the whore sits, where are these people? Are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Many different languages, many different nations speaking different languages are spiritually drunk from this whore and her wrong teaching. 
Notice now chapter 18. And after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And we might say Egypt. Egypt and Babylon are connected up, by the way, in this book. I could have a whole sermon on that. There are two or three places where they're connected up. That was the ancient pagan empire that Israel came out of, but modern Egypt is Babylon. The same thing here. Babylon is fallen and has become a habitation of demons, filled with demon spirits, fallen angels rebelled against God. A prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Notice, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. All the nations are spiritually drunk. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Mr. Capellian quotes, from quite a number of medical doctors in this book. I was just reading yet yesterday afternoon. And just, I don't know, even though I knew a lot of this, I never read it to that extent. It just hit me. These medical doctors, and he gives their names. You know, Joe Smith, M.D. I mean, real names, though, and often where they lived and what clinic they'd been connected with. They apparently admitted that. And this one young doctor came out of medical school, had been trained to be an obstetrician and gynecologist and so on, dealing in women's diseases. And he he was told, well, you have to study abortion. That's part of it. Or you can't really be a good obgen unless you study how to do abortions. So then as part of his training and later on in, in the other early years, he was had to sit in on abortions and watch it. He said at first it turned his stomach. He could hardly stand it. But he said after a while you get used to it. Pretty soon, your mind is seared. And I think he literally used that. He says, after a while, my emotions were seared, and he got used to it. But somehow, he and his little, his, his wife could not have a child themselves. So they adopted a, a pretty little girl. And after only a year or two, I guess he was just three or four years old, she ran out in the street, and they heard a screech of brakes. And he saw her little dead body on the, on the, on the pavement. And somehow, just watching her lying there, flew all over him, these other little babies that were being killed, and he connected it up, and he had to quit. He got out of the abortion industry. He just got out. He said, it made me sick. So some of these doctors admit they know what it is. And he said in his, if you read it here, and one other man admitted the same thing. He says, why were we in it? Well, because we were taught it. But also, he said, you could make more money more quickly in that particular part of medicine than anywhere else. The love of money is a root of all evils. Not the root. The old King James says the root. It's a, a root. Sex is a root. And the lust for power is a root. But the love of money is a root, one of the major roots of all evil. Many of these men get in there to make money off of these young, vulnerable girls who come in scared. They're pregnant. They're afraid to tell their parents. It describes that. And the nurses in these abortion clinics are told, and they're trained usually by male counselors, psychologists, to take these girls and kind of calm them down, tell it's all right, this is the easy way out. You won't never be known about. It'll save you money in the end. We'll have to give you $5,000 right now. But 
in the end, if you had to buy all the baby clothes, they, they use psychology on these young kids that are scared so they don't lose them as customers. The love of money permeates the society. Why do we still have cigarettes being sold all over, many of them manufactured produced right in this state and in the state of Kentucky? Why? We're part of the Bible Belt, supposedly Christian. What's going on? The love of money, that's why they learned way back in 1952, 3, and 4 that cigarettes would absolutely kill people and those who smoke continually would often end up with lung cancer and many victims of lung cancer would end up with unusually horrible suffering and death, terrible slow agony, but they went right on selling the cigarettes. Why? Money, money, money. This world is sick. And you and I need to realize it's sick. And you young people, I know it looks like nice people all around. They don't come out waving knives at you right away and all that kind of thing. But Satan is behind this society. And every one of us has got to realize that. Nearly every facet of this society has been poisoned by Satan the devil. And we want to really learn to hate this world, not the people in it, but the system and the long And I mean long for the kingdom of God and pray with our whole being. Father in heaven, please send Jesus soon. The next to the last verse of the whole Bible, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and cry out for the kingdom of God and cry out to help you come out of this world and you young people to want to come out of it. It looks good on the surface, but in the end, it is not good at all. It is not good at all. And you have to really understand that and and grasp what the mind of your creator is telling you. So he says, the nations, all nations, verse 3, have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. They're spiritually drunk, all the nations. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with this Babylon, and the merchants of the earth have become rich. That's why they get into it. Why did the people sell munitions? Why do the Alfred Cripp family and these other families, the Siemens, they have Siemens plant right here somewhere, famous name over in Nazi Germany. They'd manufacture things for Hitler's war machine. They went right along with it back then. I'm not blaming the modern descendants, but that's what they did do. Their famous names are still there. Money. They become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, here's the message for you and me. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. My brethren, please come out of Babylon, every aspect of it. Come out of this attitude that many of you have and many of our young people still have of illicit sex. You know that, all you kids who watch television and go to movies. They constantly show young people living together. They don't say they're fornicating, but they obviously are. They're living together without benefit of marriage. They try to make it look fun. They try to make it look normal. They don't show the mental anguish and the suffering because later on the boy won't marry the girl. In many cases, she's, she's given herself away for nothing. Why, does, why should he marry her? And they get all frustrated because they don't know the meaning of marriage and the meaning of life and the meaning of sex in the first place. And so they end up all confused and they get into drugs and liquor and everything else. Doesn't show you the other side of the picture. 
God's law is real. It's just like the law of gravity, as Mr. Armstrong explained. You don't have to push a book down. If you drop the book, there's no angel that has to push it down. It just automatically comes down. Sin automatically brings us down. It always does that. There's suffering involved with sin. It is Satan's way. It will not bring good things. It will bring bad things. It will bring us right down to death and finally to the second death, which none of us want. And young young people especially, a lot of you I know don't get it. As you see this nation go down, as you see our national debt go up, as you see the power and prestige of America go down, down, down over the next five or seven or eight years, whatever it is. As you see all these other things happening, you know we've been talking about increasing drought, famine, terrible storms, alternating floods and drought, disease epidemics, earthquakes with increasing power, and finally Christ coming, all the other things. You know There is a God. That God has said these things will happen and they will happen here. And the God who said those things would happen in a certain way that we've described. That God is real. And that God stands behind this book. And that God stands behind his law. And so we have to have the fear of God. Not fear of a monster. I don't go around unable to sleep at night because of God. I've been serving God now for over 62 years. I'm not afraid of God in that sense. But I have an awe of God, I deeply do not want to go out and kill or commit adultery or steal because I know there's a terrible penalty. I know it's wrong. I know that I could be cut off from a magnificent opportunity to live with God forever and ever and ever. I don't want to lose out on the purpose of human existence, and I hope you don't either. So have that awe of the great creator who gives us life and breath and everything we have and come out of sin, come out of Egypt and obey God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your being. That's what God wants us to do. And so he says, come out of her lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And there are going to be many, many plagues, so to speak, of disease epidemics And drought and famine, you want to call them weather plagues, every other kind of plagues that are going to come on our nation. And they're going to come just in the next few years. I don't mean 20 or 30 years, but the next 5 or 10 years, they're going to begin to happen. Maybe they'll all end in the tribulation beginning within 10 years. But again, I hope it'll be that way. I don't want to set dates. As I said, brethren, I don't want to set dates, so don't let me do that. (laughs) Every date we've ever set has been wrong. But the big picture we have described has always been right. All the major events that Mr. Armstrong said years ago, decades ago, have either happened or they are now happening or the prelude to them is beginning to happen. They're all going to happen, just as Almighty God said in the Bible. So we need to understand that. Brethren, we need to sincerely want to come out of sin. And I hope you young people, as you read the good things about the way of God, will want to come out of sin. And we need to certainly try with all our heart uh, to saturate our minds, not with Satan's approach, but with God's approach. So let's think about that aspect of it as we think about coming out of sin. Okay, since we should not saturate ourselves with Satan the devil's approach, as he broadcasts all over, through the media and through Satan's broadcasting system and directly, as I've explained, sometimes Satan will literally 
you know, you'll be walking along and bad ideas will just start flooding into your mind. Go do this, go do that. And you wonder, where did that idea come from? Sometimes it is directly from Satan, the devil. That's happened to me a few times. And as I've said, I thought later, I didn't read anything along that line. I didn't see anything along that line. That idea came from the outside. Where? It did not come from God. It came from Satan, the devil. So how can we then truly come out of sin then? What should we fill our minds with? Let's go now, if you would, to John uh, chapter 6, the gospel of John, brethren, and turn with me to chapter 6. The gospel of John, as I mentioned to you many times, is one of the most magnificent books in the Bible. There are many that are very important, and it's certainly one of them. And the last third of the book of John, of the entire gospel of John, is devoted to one week of Jesus' life. It explains that last week in great detail and what he said in chapter, you know, 13, 31, clear on through chapter 17. Those verses we read parts of the other night at Passover. Notice here in John chapter 6, verse 51. Here's the Son of God, the one who'd been with God from eternity. The Logos of the Old Testament, the rock of ancient Israel, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. He said, verse 51, I am, that was his name, I am the living one, the ever-living one. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He said a little later, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You're not immortal but you have the presence of eternal life in you through the Holy Spirit. For then he says, and I will raise him up. You will die unless you live right up to Christ's coming, but he will raise you up. You have the presence of eternal life in you, Christ in you through the Holy Spirit. I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood You've got to literally saturate your heart, your mind, your spirit, your attitude with Jesus Christ. Drink in of Christ. Feed on Christ. He and eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. Christ then lives in you. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. You've heard me refer to this scripture before. This is one of the most important verses. What do you feed on, brethren? You young kids, what do you feed on? How many hours a week do you watch television and play the Internet? Think of the number of hours. Add them up. Now put them together and then compare that with how many hours you spend reading the Bible and praying to God on your knees. What is the balance between the two? You have to think about that. Yes, sincerely. I'm not being nicey-nice, it's just the truth. What do you feed on? If you want to feed on Christ and study the Bible and things related to the Bible, then you feed on Christ and pray to God until Christ tells you that. He says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. These words in this book, my brethren, they are spirit and they are life. These words are the revelation of the mind of the great God 
who gives us life and breath and everything we have. And so if we feed on these words, we begin to think like God. We begin to talk like God. We begin to act like God if we feed on them and pray and honestly try to follow Christ, honestly try to understand and do what God says, of course, and if we're called so we can understand. So we've got to do that. We've got to obviously do the basic things, as we've said. Study the Bible, then meditate carefully on what you've read, then pray to God for understanding and strength, and then fast once every month or so, complete fasting. And during the day of fasting, don't just starve yourself. I found years ago, before I understood, some days when I was still in college, I'd just do without food and go to all my classes and do my normal work, and it didn't do me very much good. Later I learned that I should take off at least a half a day, spend more time that evening previously. You fast from sunset to sunset normally and studying and praying, but then extra that morning, and then maybe go to morning classes or work, but just stop at noon and that afternoon, or switch it, whichever side is best for you. Spend the whole, at least half that day, studying, praying, meditating, drawing closer to the Creator. Then the fast will do you a lot of good. And for several days afterward, you will find a spiritual lift. You'll recharge your spiritual batteries. Just starving yourself alone is not good. That won't do you that much good spiritually. So you need to have that strength to overcome sin. In chapter 14, turn now, if you would, to John chapter 14, and notice here, and I've read this, but I want to explain it one more time because so many people get this mixed up, as you know, the first few verses. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And you know, the Protestant ministers nearly always use this scripture in a, in a funeral sermon. And the whole implication is that your beloved dead one is off in heaven floating around in my father's house, there are many mansions, and he points toward the sky, and you think they're up there somewhere doing nothing or sitting on pink clouds or something. Is that what Christ is saying? No. He said, in my father's house. Again, it's a definition of terms. Let's let this very book and this very man, Jesus Christ, explain himself. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. What does he mean by my father's house? Back in John chapter 2, John chapter 2, he came into the temple, it shows here in verse 44, and found those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers, and he drove them out and overturned the money changers' tables. He was love, but he said, get out of here. He had righteous indignation. He didn't hate them. He just said, get out of here. You're messing up God's house. He said, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house. Verse 16. Do not make the temple he's talking of. That's where it was. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So he's talking about the temple. In the temple, as the commentaries and historians, and they don't all admit, but many do, it was a fair-sized building, and they had little enclaves on the side of it, and they would have offices, little offices or places where the priests would live or function, and they had an office for the high priest and an office for this and that various functionary in the temple. 
In my father's house, there are various offices. And the temple was a type of what? The whole book of Hebrews shows. The whole book of Hebrews. It was a type of God's heaven. And so then in heaven, there are various offices. And God has many offices he's preparing for us. The temple was just a type of God's kingdom in that sense. And so he's preparing various offices for us, jobs that we're to do. Some will be over five cities. Some will be over ten cities, as Jesus said back in Matthew 25. And in Luke chapter 19, you know, Luke 19, verses 11 to 19, some would have various jobs in the coming kingdom. They'd have various offices, various jobs. And I go and prepare a place, a position The best word I think to use here is position. There are various positions for you, various jobs, various responsibilities in the kingdom of God. I go and prepare a position. Will you be over five cities or ten cities or a whole nation? Or will you be a a special musical director? Or what will you be in God's coming government? I prepare a position for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Where is Jesus going to be? Well, the rest of the Bible shows us for the next 1,100 years, he's going to be right here on this earth. He will come as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the kingdom of God will be on this earth, as we've explained over and over. So he will be here. And where I know, I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Here's doubting Thomas, who always wasn't sure of things. But Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And brethren, the way to overcome sin is to fully feed on that, to feed on this book, to feed on these passages in that book, and fully realize if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to overcome sin, then you simply focus your mind. You saturate your mind with Jesus Christ. You come to realize that he is the way. His whole personality, his whole way of life, that was the way. He was the truth. He was the life. And as you read about it, you see a young man who loved people, who served them all day long. He was willing to give up himself. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have a family. He wasn't setting the example for every human being as he shows. He was as God of the Old Testament told them it's better to marry and all that. Nevertheless, he was willing to give up everything. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. All of us think we've got to have material things. We've got to be well taken care of to be happy. His main job was to do God's work. As you know, we've described many times earlier in this book, he said, my my food is to do the work of God. Is that your food? Is that what gives your life meaning, to do the work of God? Some of our men in this work could make a lot more money somewhere else. Why are they here? Well, because their their desire is to do the work of God, not to make more money. So we're not here to make more money. We're here to do the work of God and do His will. That's the key thing we all have to understand all the time. Are we here to please ourselves? So many people, the young people, they want what they want and they want it now. No, wait. Do it God's way and God will bless you more in the end. Christ was willing to wait and not to be married in this physical life at all. And the Apostle Paul, the same way. Many of God's servants gave up and they put God first. Some of our young people in the church 
sometimes get into fornication because they, they have an itch they can't scratch and they think we've got to go have sex right now. No, you don't. You can fast, you can pray, you can seek God. And in God's time, if you do your part, he will give you a mate if you need a mate. That's fine. Get a mate. God wants most of you to have a mate. But there's never an excuse to get out and start whoring around and misuse your bodies in that way and dishonor God. God hates lying. People that lie and twist the truth and so on. God hates fornication. God hates adultery. As it says back in Proverbs, one who commits adultery, one who, I think it uses the term adultery, has sex with another man's wife, lacks heart. The original Hebrew back there is the commentary say lacks heart. You lack heart if you go into another man's wife. Do you know what that means? You're taking this man's beautiful sweetheart that he married, maybe the father, uh, the wife, uh, the woman he married, the mother of his children, with whom he's had all these hopes and dreams and experiences, and you're dragging that whole thing right through the sewer pipe. And I don't care if she's sorry later and you're sorry later. It can never be quite the same again. You lack heart. You're not thinking about the real meaning of sex. You're not thinking about the real meaning of marriage, that marriage pictures an everlasting relationship of love and kindness and loyalty. You're to be loyal to your mate forever in this life. You're breaking that basic thing that God wants you to learn about marriage. You lack heart, and you certainly lack understanding. So any of these things we do like that, when you kill another human being and you have the attitude to hate, He that hates someone is murdering them in his heart, as Jesus brought out in the Sermon on the Mount. If it was convenient, then you might kill him. You take the life of another human being and wipe out all his hopes and dreams, the love his parents had for him, the wife and children he may have, all the rest of it's gone. You've taken that away because of your particular anger and vanity. He hurt my feelings and I'm going to kill him. This young man that came into the, about a 42-year-old Korean, I guess it was, that came into that Christian-type school, they called it out in Oakland the other day, and shot, what was it, seven people. He got his feelings hurt because some people made fun of him because of his accent. Well, they should not have made fun of him because of his accent. But is that an excuse to go around killing people? No, it is not. Again, if we're called out of this world and we begin to think these things through, would Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible, ever do that? You've got to constantly think, what would Jesus do? Jesus said, forgive your enemies, pray for them. He says, don't not only, uh, he says, whoever even looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's Jesus' teaching, magnifying God's law. That's how you overcome sin. You try to honestly follow Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, again, my favorite verse, where Paul wrote, I'm crucified with Christ. You crucify the old self. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, not the old selfish self, but the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. You live by the faith of the Son of God, Christ's faith in you. 
excuse me, So, brethren, we overcome sin by being filled with Jesus Christ and really understanding that we've got to have him living in us. Excuse me. Turn to chapter 15 now. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bring forth more fruit. He will prune you and me. He will let us go through trials and tests. He will let us go through physical sickness and infirmity. He will let some of our loved ones die. He will let some of us lose jobs. Yes, some of us may be thrown in jail before it's all over. We must understand that. He will test us. But we have got to walk with God and know that we have given our life to God and our life is not our life anymore. It's God's life. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, Jesus said, Jesus lives in you, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So again, you cannot overcome sin, brethren. You cannot overcome sin, young people, unless you learn to have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ and ask him to help you, strengthen you, guide you, live his life in you. Then you can fully overcome sin. And that is the only way. There isn't any other way. So let's understand. Turn now to Philippians, if you would. Philippians chapter 4. And beginning here. In verse 10, he says, no, verse 9, let's begin in verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, Paul did set a wonderful example of constantly working, suffering, driving himself on to do the work of God in every way he could. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need. A lot of Americans think they need a big house. They've got to have two television sets. They've got to have two cars. No, they don't got to have any of that. When I grew up, I was very happy. In the first 13 years of my life, I grew up in a small little brick house, about 11 or 1,200 square feet, one old beat-up 1932 Buick my dad had. That's all there was. It was depression. But I was a happy kid. Had enough to eat at least. We didn't starve. We had a lot of beans and potatoes. But we didn't do without in that sense. Where was my wonderful king-sized bed and television? There wasn't any television back then. We only had one old stand-up radio. And after a few years and Patty and Catherine came along, my bedroom was the couch in the living room. That's what I slept on from about 8 until 13, the couch in the living room. I never complained. I thought this is the way life is. I saw men outside going up and down, doing without work, the WPA, and trying to do make-work projects. I realized it was hard times. Later on, my mother was embarrassed because some of the junior high school ladies were having parties and dances and 
they would come by and get me because my parents' car didn't work very well and the girls and their mother, and they would find out that Roderick was sleeping on the couch in the living room. <laughs> so my mother pressured my dad to get a bigger house so I could have my own room. It wasn't fancy, but we did have a nice two-story house, and I had my own room at least. One bathroom, the whole family shared, and all the rest of it. But I was happy. You can be very happy with a lot less if you just get used to it. And the whole world's going to get used to being a little bit more careful, I think. That is not what makes people happy. So Paul goes on to say, I, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. One of the happiest summers I ever had in my life. I was working in the woods in Oregon. I've told you that. Where did we sleep? All summer long, we slept in tents or in cleaned out an old cleaned out chicken house. My friend and I slept on bedrolls uh, on the old under the old chicken house because there was a partial roof that didn't leak most of the time. Sometimes it did, but I was very happy out in the big trees, going up and down. They didn't say timber; they'd say down the hill. Yell the other loggers and kind of warn people around to get out of the way. That's where I worked. Was very happy. And Mrs. Duncan's wife, she was the man, only woman there. Her, She was a wife of a farmer. Mr. Armstrong talks about him. She was a wonderful countrywoman, made us great, huge breakfast. <clears throat> and every morning, we had a great big plate of eggs, fried eggs, and buckwheat pancakes with plenty of syrup. I thought I was in heaven, <laughs> sleeping in a cleaned-out chicken house because I was happy, out working in the woods. It's beautiful, had a great big breakfast every morning, and so on. I know how to be a base, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And brethren... The trials we have in this spiritual life, of course, are much worse than those trials I had as a teenager. I understand that. As a young man, 20 years old, working in the woods, young men can go through a lot and still enjoy it. I understand that. But God will be with us. If Christ lives in us, we can make it. We will make it. We must make it. Turn back, if you would now, to Hebrews, if you were, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Here it's speaking of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 5 at this point, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ was made by God a high priest, directly by God on the order of Melchizedek, who, speaking of Christ, in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers, as Jesus did, and supplications with vehement cries and tears, Christ was bawling and shaking vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And was heard because of his godly fear. The awe he had for God the Father. He'd been with God forever. He said, well, I know him. I'll get a favor. He knew. No, I've got to do it right. There's no one else to die for the world. I've got to make it. And God is watching me. The whole weight of the world was on his shoulders in a certain sense. 
So he was literally shaking and bawling as a human being. Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being having been perfected, he became the author of self, eternal salvation to all who obey him. Brethren, Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. As it tells us back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he went through every type of test that we do, a different way perhaps, but every point of the law, every type of test. He went through it in the human flesh. He made it. How did he make it? Because unlike many of us sitting right here, and many of you brethren around the world who may hear this later, I'm not trying to hurt you, I'm trying to help you. But Christ did not do it halfway. He went all out. He cried and with vehement cries and tears, Help me! Help me, O God! He meant it. I hope you're sincere in wanting to come completely out of sin. Completely out of sin. And being in the everlasting kingdom of God, I hope you will go all out. I hope that I will go all out. I hope we will all be there in God's eternal kingdom because we have let Christ live in us. And we've not been perfect, but overall we will let Christ live his life within us. And we will have come out of Egypt. We will have come out of Babylon. And we will have come out of sin because we will have gone all out to let the Christ of the Bible live his life within us through the Holy Spirit.